0: Hi, and welcome to the Propel SA podcast brought to you by South Australian owned business group Propel SA. Propel Essay podcast will be sharing with you great South Australian stories where we'll be chatting to South Aussie business owners about their experiences working in and owning a business in South Australia. My name is Mary Nizamas and I'm the chair of the board of Propel SA. And my name's Laura Moore and I'll be your host. Each month, our team will be bringing you great South Australian stories from our members. Welcome everybody to the next episode of sharing great South Australian stories with Propel SA members and today we're joined by Nathan Schwartz, Director of Black Box Accounting. Hi Nathan, how are you?
1: Yeah, great. To so, Laura and yourself?
0: Good, thank you. Very good. Now you are the director of Black Box Accounting and a Propeller Say member, um, but your business perplexes me somewhat because you are a forensic accountant. Can you please let us know a little bit more about what forensic accounting is?
1: Sure. Yeah. Look, look forensic accounting—it's a, a, I guess, a niche, a niche field sort of carved out from from general accounting. It's. It's pretty broad, it's a broad field. I suppose that the a through line with forensic accounting is it generally involves some form of investigative accounting engagement. So whereas, you know, conventional accounting will usually involve some sort of ongoing relationship with your tax accountant or business advisor, usually forensic accounting is, that role can be very specific. So more, most commonly, it's, um, it can be involved in expert witness engagement in court. So To give you a current example, I'm currently engaged as an expert accounting witness in a dispute between two contractors who were um, involved with the MBN rollout. So there's a dispute over an alleged shortfall in invoice payments. So my role there is to undertake a forensic accounting review of the invoicing practices and ultimately report to the court. So there's an independence element to it. It's about bringing someone independent in to whether it's review accounts or value of business or just perform some sort of discreet investigation and then report back to um, the stakeholders. So sometimes that's just be a specific client um, or as I said before, it can be to the court if they want an independent uh, expert report. So that's, that's forensic accounting in a, in a nutshell. Uh, what, and really the type of engagements can be very, very broad, not just contractual disputes. It can be uh, been asked to quote on an investigation into employee fraud. Uh, so it's any time you want someone to pick through accounts and pull out some numbers, basically.
0: Wow, very fascinating. It's an interesting look. It's an
1: interesting, it's an interesting field. Uh, it sort of dovetails into the other aspect aspect of my practice, which is insolvency. So uh, prominently, uh, liquidations and corporate insolvency. There's a strong forensic accounting element to that because on any insolvency engagement, there's a uh, one component of that is to investigate the affairs of the insolvent company and that sort of involves looking through its history and financials and uh, any material transactions so in that respect that's also a forensic accounting engagement it's just a in it's different set sort of circumstances so that the two tend to to go hand in hand
0: mm, yeah fascinating how did you get into this how did you you know focus on this specialty
1: well by, by accident if, if i'm honest and i think that if you ask a lot of people in my profession how they ended up doing insolvency forensics. It, that's the most common answer, it is by accident. Uh, I I studied, I did the common law double uh, at uni and with every intention of being a, a solicitor and I, I was for a very short uh, amount of time. Uh, I think I might get done sort of six or nine months of work uh, as, a, as a lawyer and, and already had the sense that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So uh, after, uh, leaving, leaving the law, it was really a case of trying to find uh, another pathway. Uh, I didn't really have a strong sense that I wanted to do conventional uh, tax accounting. Uh, so um, so the, way it, the way it transpired was that um, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were in Adelaide at that time. We really always wanted to spend some time over in Victoria and move to Melbourne. So I saw an advertisement for a national, national accounting practice specialising in insolvency in Melbourne, uh, applied. Uh, got the job and we moved and we spent sort of 10 years over there and um, once I was doing it and actually working in that field uh, I guess it sort of became a, a passion and something that I um, you know, really really enjoyed something I've, I've always found challenging continued to find challenging so um, that's sort of the the story um, a lot of people leave early in, in their career in insolvency I think once you make it through those first three to four years it gets you and I think it's got me
0: Yeah, wow. And you obviously had the passion for law as well to a degree, even if it wasn't quite what you wanted to do. And that seems to go hand in hand with what you're doing now anyway.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, It's interesting you say that because uh, in other jurisdictions outside Australia, it's not uncommon for the insolvency practitioners to be lawyers. Now, Mm -hmm. it's just the way the system's evolved here and in some other jurisdictions that it's accountants that make up the insolvency profession in Australia.
0: But in a lot of other other
1: places, it would be be, um, something done probably by law, particularly in the, I think the US is one big example. So, um, and it's almost a misnomer to to say what I do is accounting. It's yeah. just it lacks a definition really.
0: Yeah, that's right. It, it sounds a lot more involved, obviously, than that. And you're doing investigative work that you know is is going to result in the outcomes of a case, or you know, and that's quite um, quite a law type practice. I would <laughs> assume. It is, and
1: and a lot of it isn't necessarily getting into the numbers and doing financial analysis and things of that nature. A lot of it is about just plain written communication. And again, especially on the insolvency side where um, the role is to represent creditors in an insolvent administration. So a big part of the role is just conveying information, and and that's more about written expression rather than financial analysis. So it tends to draw a lot on, um, on those sort of legal skills and it's very regulated, so necessarily we have to understand not just the direct insolvency laws, but a lot of other laws too. So if we're trading on a business, we need to be able to navigate oh laws, tax laws, You to use it name it, we could find ourselves dealing with all manner of different legal issues. So it's, mm. it's a bit of a hybrid role.
0: Mm, mm, yeah, fascinating. What type of clients do you typically service? Well, my,
1: my experience is in SMEs. So um, it's not industry specific. Uh, I've worked with insolvent uh, companies across a uh, full range of industries from hospitality, tourism, transport, building, construction. Um, it's more just the, uh, the size that's varied. So anything from small companies that are tantamount to um, uh, sole proprietorships, so effectively you know, one, one director who's just using the company as a vehicle to, to trade, whether it's as a, a plumber, or electrician—you know—something at that sort of scale where the income might be one hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand a year, uh, through to bigger um, groups of companies that are turning over forty or fifty million uh, per year. So it's sort of that—that that broad. Um, it it's such a niche, there's less scope to really specialise. But um, mm. I guess at the upper levels, when you start to talk about the really big insolvencies like Virgin um and and those sorts of um Colorado borders those sorts of things then you you can be a bit more specialized and there are some people that would do probably retail but Mm -hmm. at that scale but when you sort of uh, where in my market with SMEs you really I really have to be able to deal with different issues across different different industries and um I think the SA market is another um reason why it's uh, difficult to to specialize um we've got we have a lot of companies here. There's, I think, there's 130,000 companies registered in SA. But again, you'll find a lot of them are more SMEs rather than large-scale um, businesses.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, across multiple different industries, and so you can't really specialise in niche industries either. Probably, as as you identified.
1: Yeah, it, it's really difficult. And I think um, yeah, statistically, on average, I think 0.3 of a percent of companies will will enter liquidation or some form of insolvency administration over the course of any um, year it's a very small small number so uh yeah it's almost a needle in a haystack type situation so you don't really know what's going to come through the door um, yeah. I mean, in the last 18 months basically virtually nothing's come through the door on the insolvency side but it's been very very quiet since the pandemic started so it's
0: um, good, surely, bad for business, good for
1: it, businesses. <laughs> overall, it is. I think the uh, the government's clear intention was to maintain liquidity in the economy and keep businesses going throughout um, these lockdowns. And I think that's a totally sensible uh, approach. Uh, it's it'll be interesting to see how what happens when we come out of it. Uh, I think the uh, the issue is going to be that there will be to some degree a backlog of insolvencies, and uh, that might. There might be a, a spike, but that might not necessarily be a direct result of the pandemic. It might just mm. be that things have like job like people that. kept, yeah, kept businesses afloat that might otherwise have entered liquidation. So I think mm-hmm. I think we'll all see a spike. It's just people will then be asking, is this just natural attrition, or is this something broader that's come about by what about by COVID? You know, is this a lasting change to say tourism or, or hospitality? And we we're, we're just not going to know that for I think another couple of years until we see what the post. COVID zero policy looks like which is all over the media at the moment anyway.
0: Mm, yeah I have heard that actually that there's been theories that you know potentially the government solutions at the moment are going to band-aid the problems that businesses have had and they will end up in that situation regardless of government support.
1: I, I think I think there would definitely be businesses that are in that, that situation. Uh, obviously JobKeeper had a very profound effect on liquidity of small businesses yeah essentially had the government paying wages liabilities which mm. is um again critical relief but it doesn't necessarily create a clear picture for how that business is going and and again you just don't know what how industries are going to be affected um post post pandemic um, and uh the nature of the way we're doing business is, is changing um, there's more of a acceptance of remote working arrangements and then you have to ask well how's that going to affect you know, inner city commercial rents and things like that so it just yeah, there's a lot of question marks and I, and I think that um, there will necessarily be a role for me, um, but you know, I don't sort of sit there and rub my hands together because the nature of what I do. I'm there to support business as best I can. and If I'm needed in a formal capacity, well, you know, I'm, I'm available to to do that. So
0: mm-hmm. Excellent. Without disclosing the client, obviously, what is the most interesting case of liquidation that you've had to deal with?
1: Yeah, look, I um, think was a liquidation relatively early in my career and when I was working in Melbourne obviously with my previous employer it was a special purpose company that was set up to acquire the performance rights to a musical and run the musical uh, which which it did unfortunately um, look, unsuccessfully the the issues it had was uh, was wasn't able to get a venue in sort of the more premier location in Melbourne, so you know, sort of Collins Street, for if you're familiar with, with the way that's set up. Yeah. Instead, they um they, they hosted the uh, performances in a circus tent in Docklands, which again, if you're sort of familiar with the way that cities evolve, Docklands it tends me be very quiet. It doesn't get a lot of through traffic because there's really nowhere to go. So, um. So instead of having banners and, you know, ad, you know live advertisements for this musical, it was really tucked away. So it just didn't get, didn't get the attention. So the, uh, the directors brought us in toward the end of the season and we ran the numbers and we ended up finishing the show. So uh, we continued to, uh, it was only a brief period, Russ, we, so essentially we ran a musical for <laughs> wow. a short time, which yeah, is really unusual and never had anything like that since. <laughs> um, and that doesn't, that doesn't represent the majority of cases, but yeah, that was really, really un, unusual. Um, and just a whole bunch of strange issues like uh, how to coordinate the um, sort of tear down of the, the site. I think the, the technical term they use is bumping out. Yep, so yep. <laughs> we'll down and do all that. So because we we're, we're at risk. So when we are appointed, uh, and I was not I take that appointment, and that was my employees at the time, but when um, we take over a company, we're in charge. The directors are effectively sidelined, and all the risk—you name it—whether it's for oh or for people on site, for um, uh, patrons, and all that—well, we we basically accept full responsibility and liability for for what goes on. So, um, trying to organise just to bump out alone was a logistical uh, nightmare, and had all manner of different uh, sort of legal issues, cost issues. Um, and, yeah, it really, that, that job really threw up a whole lot of you know, interesting uh, scenarios. We, um, we, had one, we had one instance where a um, lighting board ha- uh, was removed in um, quite suspicious circumstances and we ended up having a, a bit of a uh, dispute with the, the owner who'd rented it to the company and ended up having to pay an amount of money to, to get the lighting board back. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and that happened. Uh, it happened on a Friday and I can still distinctly recall arguing with that, um, that individual sort of at six o'clock on Friday night trying to get this lighting board back. Because, um, uh, again, this is an industry issue. Um, all the money we were going to get was going to be on weekend trade. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's obviously unique things like hospitality and entertainment. So not having a lighting board, for instance, which is obviously a critical piece of equipment when it comes to like, lighting cues and the show um Not having that would have really compromised our options, and actually would have really undermined the whole the whole job. So, mm. um, and that's representative of some of the little issues that can arise on any job, um because yeah. you're dealing with people. Yeah, this is to no fault the the um, the supplier in that case. Obviously, um, anyone involved with insolvency is exposed to loss, and you can't blame people for wanting to take steps to protect their position.
0: Mm. Yeah, of course. It sounds it sounds very interesting. I'm, Assuming you probably don't want to be part of too many more musicals or <laughs> events. Oh, look,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully it doesn't happen very often, but yeah, no, it's, they're not easy things to, uh, to manage. I wouldn't want to turn one around. I don't mind running one for a few weeks, but I wouldn't <laughs> want to, try to. Yeah, it's so specialized. You just got to know the ins and outs of the industry. And um,
0: yeah. yeah,
1: we managed to get by, which was good.
0: It must be so challenging dealing with the business owner and obviously the stress that they are feeling during liquidation, and then also the businesses that are around the fringe of that. How do you manage the complexities with the people's stress levels?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Uh, and uh, that's a, a part of insolvency that often gets gets overlooked or not necessarily fully appreciated because there is a very human element to especially SME insolvency. Again, when you get to like a virgin type level where you've got an independent board of directors and however many thousands of shareholders, that's got its own but when you talk about SMEs, where the director is also the shareholder, and
0: personal, yeah, it is what well, it is. It is very,
1: very personal, and there is certainly um, a lot of uh, stress in, involved. And um, so, how do you how do you manage that? Well, the great difficulty is in insolvency. If I'm a liquidator of a company, I strictly speaking represent the creditors. So you can have this situation where a director can initiate a liquidation, but my role then is still independent, and that can also be a cause of angst because there is an expectation sometimes in the director that, well, I appointed you, so you act for me. Mm. And um, it can be very um, difficult to um, make sure that the director has, is very clear in terms of their expectations and understanding of the process. And that's one of the keys to managing the stress is clarity around the process, being upfront about uh, what, what's involved, being very clear about what my role is. Mm. Um, so that there isn't that later anxiety about well, the director feeling that they've been misled. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you have a director who then suddenly feels, well, I've been misled by this liquidator mm. who's accepted disappointment. Um, and led me to believe that you know, this was sort of not at arm's length. It's because liquidations uh, and any form of insolvency is so heavily regulated. Um uh, at the heart of that, you've got to be independent in order to administer those regulations. So um, at the individual level, what I sort of advise directors uh, at the beginning of almost any conversation that they initiate is when you go through this process, the first thing you've got to do is look after your mental and physical health. But first and foremost, you've got to be aware of those issues and have a support network. Yeah. So I w- encourage a director to continue to retain their accountants as part of the process. If they've got a lawyer, keep them as part of the process, which can be hard because there isn't always a lot of money floating around. Um, I must admit most lawyers, accountants, other professional services are really good with clients. They're insolvent and they will continue to support them uh, because that, what they, that's generally what a director in that situation needs is that, that support because anyone, and you know, this is an individual, whenever you're in any sort of a high-stress situation, um, you naturally become impaired with your decision-making. Mm. Even though ordinarily you might be a very clear thinker and a very rational decision-maker, in situations where there's pressure and stress, particularly financial, it, makes, it can make a person susceptible to you know, poor decision-making. Mm. Um, and that's why it is really, really important for directors in that situation to have the right support around them, even if it is just engaging family and friends to yeah. be a sounding board, um, but just to not go through it uh, alone. And, um, and it also helps them in the sense that when they're dealing with me, then they can challenge me because, I, I you know, their role, obviously there's a director, even though their powers are suspended, they've still got a stake in the liquidation. They may well be a creditor. They often are. And, and they, you know, it is helpful to have someone to support them so they can challenge what I'm doing on the job and make sure I'm still accountable. So, um, yeah, I think the cases where directors go on their own, I, I find it tends to have worse worse outcomes. Um, And um, I guess the point I'd make, too, is there's greater recognition of the impact of insolvency on mental health than there has been previously. And I know there's programs being offered by Beyond Blue. and I think there might be some other services available to support small business owners. Uh, That's really, really critical. You know, Um, so there's no silver bullet at this stage. But I think uh, as as a profession we're becoming more certainly more aware of it. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to find ways to make sure that's the issue at least being addressed one way or another.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a really good point because it's not, um, you know, people often go into business in a niche or in an industry that they are passionate about and that they have expertise in. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are experts in running or managing a business. Um, so there's always going to be a risk there. And if if that risk results in, you know, a potential liquidation, then you know the knowledge that you need to have to manage that situation I think is often not not there so it would be very stressful I can imagine for people to yeah. go through
1: yeah I mean again it's not really I think another really good point now that's a common really is really good description of most SME own, you know, owners or directors that they are extremely usually extremely gifted and talented in their in their field no matter what that might be um, and it's no indictment on their intelligence that their company entered into liquidation. It is quite often reflects the fact they just don't have the financial savvy or, or acumen. And like anything, it's training. It comes yeah. down to training. We don't have mandatory training for company directors. I don't know if anywhere has mandatory training, but we definitely don't. So you can become a director and start your own business without really having to know how to read a balance sheet uh, at any level. Um, and um, and so, yeah, it's why a lot... To end up in the position that they're in, not because necessarily they're not great, because usually they all are great. They just mm. um, perhaps haven't been able to identify problems early on
0: mm. mm-hmm. and then
1: seek the right sort of advice. And, um, and it also, a lot of SMEs could do with having stronger relationships with their tax accountants and, and advisors, and um, it's still quite common for SMEs to see their accountant once a year, to drop off their accounts and get their annual reporting done. Uh, I think more and more it's becoming critically important to have regular contact and get some help around budgeting and, yeah. and forecasting and and those sorts of things and, uh, and just acknowledging the reality that, yeah you know, whilst you might be a great engineer or a great plumber, you, you know not also an accountant and, and that's a really essential,
0: yeah. essential
1: skill. So um, that's the message I try and put out there when I speak to business owners is that you know, have a good relationship with your accountant. A lot of accountants I think will look At retainer arrangements and things like that, so that they can keep the communication going. And, um, you know, because if you do pick up on issues early, you do have the best chance of uh, resolving them and, um, and fighting another day.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a really good tip. I think take your accountant out for lunch and uh, work out a, a, an ongoing communication plan with them.
1: And they're great. I mean, I. Um, my, I mean, so my network is built around accountants I mean that's really who I rely on um, as a source of referrals and I can say having been in contact with a lot throughout the last 18 months just the amount of time they've spent helping clients with um, job applications and things of that nature um, and you know most of them haven't charged they've sort of written off enormous amounts of um, fees to support their clients so they are really they're there and they're ready to to help. Um, so hopefully even maybe if nothing else, then this COVID period will have brought uh, clients and accountants a bit a bit closer together um, because they've, they've made a lot of, um, lot of sacrifice that probably won't get um, won't get fully recognized, but I can say having seen it firsthand, they've been really at the coal face. Mm,
0: mm, yeah, absolutely. What's uh, what's been one of your major challenges uh, when running Black Box?
1: Well, Black Box is effectively a startup. Mm-hmm. So, um, I
0: starting has been a challenge. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Starting, look, I, I I do wonder if I timed it right. I so so I sort of branched out. I, I was well before before Black Box, which really only came into existence in April or May this year. I was running the Adelaide office of a national practice that I've been with for twelve years. Uh, um. I sort of I had a sense that there was eventually going to be an increase in, in insolvency activity. And uh, one, of the, one of the difficulties for insolvency has, to been, has been to have a very cost-effective model and make it accessible to SMEs. So I thought, look, this is probably the time to try and see what I can uh, develop and see what a post-pandemic insolvency practice looks like, I mean, given we're now more prepared to meet remotely and um, the overhead sort of less than it has been in the past. So that was sort of the... Attitude that I took into it, um, so but the, the great challenge in all that has been that the market hasn't hasn't turned. Mm. So um, uh, it's really just a case of navigating this this period now and, and being ready when when there is um, there is some more activity and having the systems in place. So in one sense, it's been there's been a benefit in that I've been able to spend more time in the back end getting um the best technology that I can in place and uh, and doing other things like at the moment trying to build out the website and um, and do all those sorts of things uh, I guess until actually they're trying to do get all those things done like the website uh, I must have been, I didn't fully appreciate how much is in, involved in it
0: yeah yeah do you offer a consultancy program as well if people are worried that they might be approaching insolvency
1: yeah yeah absolutely and this is something that's probably not well known about the industries it it's well, in my case, and I don't have to be fair, a lot of other insolvency practitioners' case. It's not; it's a free service, so anyone can pick up the phone and um, or organise time to meet and just discuss the particular circumstances of that case and and talk through different options. Uh, for, and yeah, there's no obligation at that point to to do anything anything further. It's just giving the particular business owner and their accountant hopefully some just some additional information about what what's what they can do in terms of formal insolvency, if they if they need it, and um, that's confidential. And um, and in a lot of cases, too, those conversations don't translate into an actual appointment. It usually just gives you know the business owner a bit more perspective, and they can go and make some some better choices or different choices, hopefully.
0: Mm, yeah, excellent. I can see that that would be something that lots of people would take advantage of in the next couple of months, as you know. Government subsidies and government grants sort of start to waver a little bit.
1: Uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would think so. I think that the there are you know, the ideal business who you can benefit from early discussion is anyone who is is getting a uh, is recognizing a change in their in their situation. I mean, you don't always can't necessarily put your finger on why your businesses and circumstances have changed, but you should at the very least be able to sense that. Um. Conditions are changing. Maybe you know your working capital is uh, struggling a bit. Um, you're having to make some more challenging decisions about how to fund uh, your operating costs. I mean, if you you know, if you can usually self fund from business cash flows, and now you're trying to you're having to use a credit card mm. just to subsidize um, your your expenses, then uh, it's probably a good time to press pause and have a discussion about where things are at and uh, what. Um, what might be required to go from the current predicament back to where the business was or have a realistic assessment and say, well, maybe things have changed. You're not going to get back to where you were. Mm. So what can you do? You know, Mm. what what can you change in your business at this point in time, whether it's um, renegotiating your lease or maybe uh, you've got too many employees? I mean, it is. if you act early, you can make those tough decisions. Yeah. Uh, But if you get to a point where your suppliers and I'll put you on COD or the ATO is pursuing you for... Uh, unpaid taxes, uh, you, you're not paying paying employees super. At that point, you have fewer options, and um, and your yeah, prospects of failure do increase significantly. So, not to say it's still not worth having the discussion, because it, it most certainly is worth having discussion at any point. But the uh, the earlier you you do it, the uh, certainly the better the outcome usually.
0: Mm, yeah, excellent. That's great advice. Great advice. What's the most rewarding part, Nathan, of your job and your work and and what you do? Um,
1: it's looks the little things. There's so much negativity in, in what I do, realistically, and
0: yeah,
1: I'm, I'm very realistic in the sense that most people aren't glad to see me in a professional mm-hmm. setting. And that, I mean, what would you be? To be honest, but <laughs> uh, it, it's it, it's just the little, you know, little. Uh, positive interactions that you have with people on a file. It might not be the file overall, like most liquidations don't end up with a dividend. There's no money on it back to creditors, uh, which is obviously a negative outcome. But, you know, you might just be able to have a positive impact on a particular creditor. They, they might just want um, some clarity and understanding and being be able to give them give them that, you know, you've set them on a path to deal with their own predicament. And so you've got to look for those little wins. Mm. Um, and sometimes they are really little. But, um, but I think that's overall the most um, rewarding part. Now, look, if you can turn around a business or you've got a great business sale, don't get me wrong, that's fantastic. But, um, you know, that's, you can't always bank on those things happening because of the nature of what insolvency is. So I just tend to look at how I can positively influence each interaction that I have. And more often than not, you know, there's something in, there's something in that. Um, and, then, and, and every now and again, we do get thanked what we do and uh, again it's not <laughs> a lot but um that is it is sort of a sense that uh if you accomplish something and, and again it's usually because you've given anyone um a positive financial return or anything like that often it's just because you've given someone certainty and mm-hmm. they can have it we've shone a light in something that they couldn't see mm. and there's a genuine appreciation or you just uh, just give someone frank honest advice even if it is bad
0: yeah um, yeah, honesty is is probably very valued at that stage.
1: It's very surprising how welcome that can be, you know, mm. and how much comfort that can actually give people because mm. it takes away that fear.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah, I that, that's probably overall what's, what, what's rewarding in, in what I do.
0: And what about the most rewarding part of running your own business? Well, I mean, I haven't done, been doing it very long, to
1: be honest, so um, I'm sure it's going to be an evolving process um, uh, answer but look i guess at this stage it's been the opportunity to, to take my guess, philosophical perspective on insolvency and know that i can integrate that into my firm and i can um, make it a value-driven practice uh, mm. and uh, it can be sort of crafted in, in that image uh, i think that's that's i guess it's I say it's not rewarding yet but i guess i would say it's the most exciting part at this point is mm. knowing that yeah it can be a a firm that follows my my principles and hopefully that translates to, to success but at the very least it's um like i think i suppose any business owner will say it's the best reward of being able to do it in your own terms
0: yeah absolutely oh great well nathan it's been so lovely chatting to you and finding out more about your company black box um, we'll put your website details on our uh, podcast summary and thank you so much for joining us on the propel sa podcast yeah thank you for having me Remember today by contacting us via our website at www.propelsa.com.au. PropelSA is proudly supported by local councils City of Burnside, Town of Walkerville and Campbell Town City. And please hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so that you don't miss our next episode. Thanks for joining us.